Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today, employment lawyer Sunira Chowdhury looks at Hockey Canada's recent changes and says, okay, but that's not nearly enough. Franco Terrazano is the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and he has a lot to say about the Prime Minister's food bill we all pay for. UBC urban design professor Patrick Condon has some thoughts on the huge population growth we're about to experience here in Metro Vancouver, and political scientist Max Cameron helps unpack the very awkward BC NDP leadership process. So, let's get started. Sunira Chowdhury is back with us. She is our lawyer friend from Workley Law, last joining us on her vacation on the West Coast. We roasted her out of bed at a terribly uncivilized hour during a wonderful visit to San Francisco in order to uh, to get her opinion on the issue of the day. And Sunira, we are still very grateful for that interruption that you so graciously allowed during your vacation. Good morning and welcome back. Good morning, Sterling. You know, I'd only get up for you. Well, <laughs> it's only because you called. All right. Well, I appreciate that part. Now, you've written about Hockey Canada. I was hoping you might get around to it because pretty much everyone else has. And thank you for joining us on this. Let me just throw this quote onto the airwaves before we get started. Quote, the settlement of many assault cases by Hockey Canada over the last three decades only suggests that other cases exist but remain unresolved. How Hockey Canada handles any outstanding claims is critical to how it shapes its future. This under the headline, Is Hockey Canada Skating Over Its Culture Problem? And our the author of said piece, Sunira Chowdhury, is here to talk more about it. I'm glad you finally got around to writing about this. Uh, the, the, the subheader on this is the organization has a systemic problem that it has used money and secrecy to sweep under the rug. You talk about culture. They've had a resignation of the top, very tone-deaf board members and interim chair in the last couple of weeks, Sanira. Is that enough, or is that cosmetic? I'm concerned that it is cosmetic, Sterling, that it is window dressing. I do address that in the column because I think uh, most of us can assume that the CEO and the board of directors, and frankly, a board, is, is not meant to really weigh in on the day-to-day operations of an organization of any kind. Sure. Right? A, a, board, a board is meant to keep a CEO accountable and for the CEO to have uh, a set of folks to report to with respect to results. And it often will not trickle down to what's happening uh, on the rink. It's not um, relating to the, the, the actual experiences of players of parents and the oversight of coaches. And we know that that is the real nub of the issue here. And just because we're hearing about the absolute, you know, sort of overhaul of, of leadership, what does that really translate to in terms of the problems we're seeing at Hockey Canada between players, coaches, misconduct allegations that have really nothing to do with the higher ranks? So seeing that sweeping change, I mean, I think that's a great PR move, right. but are we effectively going to see a, a change within the organization and the culture itself? That is a huge question that remains to be answered. Yeah, it really is a huge question, too, because you're right. It's, the, the, the change at the top, Sunira, was imperative, of course, and frankly, uh, I'm sure you were uh, uh, as astonished as millions of other Canadians that it took so blinking long for them to even come to that conclusion, but they finally did. So it was, it was with that 
sort of reluctance that they approached even changing the look of the board, uh, one senses a sort of built-in reluctance to deal with the nuts and bolts of what's really going on. And you're right. No board of directors supervises the day-to-day minutiae of any organization. Yeah, and I, I think what we're seeing so far well, we know that Hockey Canada is saying that they're doing it. Well, we're, we're implementing changes to our bylaws. Again, I'm sorry, who cares? Who cares that the board governance you know, committee or the governance of the board itself is, is being overhauled? Again, that's not addressing uh, this very, very tricky and icky issue of sexual assault within the organization. It's a hot potato issue. Nobody really wants to get into the unsavory details of what the organization is actually dealing with here. Have we heard, you know, even one one direct acknowledgement that this is a problem? And have we heard one potential solution? We haven't. The process is not there. It has to have something to do with coach oversight as a as a first first primary instance, but we haven't even heard that uh, being acknowledged that there is a systemic problem within the organization down, I think, frankly, between the power imbalance that that exists. We know this exists. I mean, it's from the beginning of time between coach and player. And whether or not that's going to be tackled, addressed, oversight being implemented, I mean, to what extent are, are coaches... Um, given performance reviews, does it happen quarterly? Is there is there something you know that is going to hold coaches and their misconduct to account? These are the questions that all parents should be asking. These are the questions that all players should be asking. Right. Uh, we've also had, of course, the federal government and the sports minister, Pascal Saint-Ange, uh, ring in on this quite vehemently. And, of course, there's been a parliamentary committee of inquiry as well, quite, uh, quite searing with some of their questions. Uh, so what has that government intervention done to this whole file in the past few weeks? I think all that it's done is it's, it's shed the. It's continued to shed a light, of course. I, I mean, on the tarnished reputation of of Hockey Canada. I think what we know, um, and we can only expect, Sterling, is that the story isn't over. Yeah. Um, and I and I allude to it uh, in my column. I don't have any other information uh, than anyone else has. But if we know how Hockey Canada has um, engaged in sweeping some of these allegations under the rug with large payouts who's to say that the that that has stopped we again don't know how they're dealing with current cases to the extent that they exist i'm not saying we know that they do but how is that culture going to change i mean the the issue i mean speaking as a litigator the issue is many cases never want to see the light of day that is that's not going to change because organizations sometimes do have to deal with unsavory details, sensitive allegations that, and, and, uh, and often both parties don't want it to see the light of day. So there are nuances to this that I, I don't want to sort of, um, you know, skate over here, but, right. at the, but at the end of the day, if the organization has uh, this problem, I doubt that it's not a problem that isn't ongoing. And I think what we might see from the government angle is how any ongoing or future cases of sexual harassment, sexual assault within the organization has to be dealt with 
whether there's a criminal process that has to be followed, a civil process that has to be followed, but there has to be some kind of, of methodology that the organization should be required to follow if this happens in the future. And, and with an organization like this, it probably will happen, unfortunately. Well, they've got Supreme Court Justice Thomas Cromwell of, of doing a governance review that doubtless will come up with all sorts of recommendations. But before that all comes down, you've actually uh, submitted a few uh, recommendations of your own in your recent column in Post Media Papers across the country. You talk about creating a forum for victim support. I suppose, Sunira, if there's anything interesting about that observation, it's the fact that there isn't one so far, given the volume that we now understand to be at play. Yeah, I, I think the fact that the organization hasn't recognized that there are victims, that there are a lot of resources that could be made available, including access to benefits like counseling, like mental health resources that uh, that have to that have to be in play, because we have. Of course, players here that continue to be involved with the organization that don't have access to those resources. Um, I think parents need access to resources. That employees need access to resources. So that's something that sh- certainly should be introduced because there has to be a rehabilitation here. Yeah. Right. I-, I mean, this is an organization that is is really hurting, and if we don't talk about what that rehabilitation is going to look like. Um, that's problematic. Yeah. And you, one of your rec- recommendations uh, is provide safe communication tools to report abuse. I mean, the, the even the awkwardness of, of coming forward with some horrible situation that's occurred. I mean, if you're talking about a young person, uh, they aren't particularly skilled with those communications uh, uh, abilities. So if you give them ways and means to express themselves and to bring the case forward, um, that's important, too. Almost out of time, want to canvas your, your one of one of the recommendations you talk about, a diverse board with an equal number of women on it for the National Hockey Canada. What difference would that make? I think the, I think the difference that it's going to make is that we need diverse opinions on the board. That if you want a change, change up leadership. And right now there's only one female director that's on the board who's, of course, now stepping down as part of the, the entire board that's effectively stepped down. Right. And if you want to recreate this board, I think when we're dealing with particularly issues of sexual harassment, sexual assault, you need a balanced perspective on how to address those issues, especially when silence has been the response mm-hmm. to date. This isn't an issue that is traditionally tackled um, uh, by men. Let's call it what it is. This is not an issue that there's, there may be a lot of expertise there, but I think if you actually create some gender parity on the board, you're going to have better ideas, better responses, better ways of trying to communicate and provide those resources. Yeah, and I wouldn't be surprised if Judge Cromwell came down with recommendations that very, very, very similar to yours. And, of course, there will be even more. Sunira, wonderful to have you back on the show. Friends, the column is, Is Hockey Canada Skating Over Its Culture Problem? I saw it in the Vancouver province a couple of days ago. Google it. It's worth it. It's a good read. Sunira Chowdhury from Workley Law. Uh, joining us again this morning. Thanks ever so much. Look forward to our next chat already. Have a good morning, Sterling. There's a survey out by the people at Nanos that says uh, 55% of Canadians, when asked, said uh, they're quite likely to continue wearing masks on planes or trains over the next 12 months. 
Uh, it's surprising to some of us in the building here today. So our Buzzline question straight up this morning. Will you continue to wear a mask on your next plane trip or train ride for that matter? Or are you done? 604-331-BUZZ. 604-331-2899. You can call or you can text. And if you text, let us know your first name and where you're texting from. Will you continue to wear a mask or are you done? That's the Buzzline question today. Uh, we're on the hook, by the way, for a, a lot of money at the Prime Minister's residence. The big story this week has been a tab of $55,000 and counting for household expenses for the Prime Minister. Here to talk about it is the Federal Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Franco Terrazano, joining us this morning from Ottawa. Franco, good morning. Welcome back. Hey, good morning, and thanks so much for having me on the show today. Well, it's good to have you with us. This this was a bit of an eye-popping headline in the Vancouver Sun the other day. I'm Canadian taxpayers on the hook for $55,000 of Trudeau family's annual grocery bill. The subheader, Franco, says that works out to a little over 1000 bucks a week. Kitchen staff prepare the meals at 24 Sussex, which are transported by courier to Rideau Cottage, where the family resides. Just adding to the cost. So let's let's cut to some of the numbers here, and we'll get to Rideau Cottage in 24 Sussex in a minute. Yeah, well, uh, a little warning for your listeners right now. Put down the coffee because some of this is really eye-popping. It might get some uh, people's blood boiling. I know it did mine when you find out that on average, dating back to 2007, uh, us taxpayers are on the hook for about $55,000 every single year for the Prime Minister's household food expenses. Um, you know, we got back hundreds of pages of access to information request documents, and it shows trips to dollar stores, organic groceries, fancy box water, bunch of trips to fancy cheese shops in Ottawa. Uh, about $55,000 a year is the total taxpayer tab. Last year's tab was even more than that. Uh, about $76,000 is what taxpayers were on the hook for. Uh, for the Prime Minister's household food expenses. So, Franco, if you're going back to 2007 as you dive into these numbers and do some good homework, and you're great at that, uh, that would include Prime Minister Harper along with Mr. Trudeau. So this seems to be not a personal thing of Justin Trudeau's. It seems to be the way the PM, period, runs his household. That's absolutely correct. This is a nonpartisan issue. It's a taxpayer issue. Uh, But you know what? The buck has to stop with the current Prime Minister. He's the one who can fix this right now, and that's why we're calling on Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to do a few things, because it's not just a cost thing. I mean, it absolutely is when you look at $55,000 a year for household food expenses, but it's also a huge transparency thing. Number one, you can't find any of this online. We had to get this through access to information requests, so these receipts should be posted online. But number two, what might even be the worst of all, is that the government wouldn't tell us how it managed to rack up this tab. Was it, was, is the $55,000 a year just for personal food expenses? We don't know. Right. Is the $55,000 a year also including official government business? We don't know. We went back and forth with the PCO and the Prime Minister's office for months, and they either weren't willing to tell us or they didn't have an answer. Interesting. Franco, how did they do this elsewhere? For example, does the White House publish the president's uh, uh, food expenses? Does the UK, does number 10 Downing Street publish the British prime minister's personal, et cetera, and household expenses on a routine basis? Okay, so first let me just start with what they told us. So after going back and forth with them for months, they gave us a, about a clear-as-mud answer, and they said, well, you know, the prime minister uh, does pay back some of the money. Uh, it has to do with a formula based on Stats Canada's inflation rate. 
um, okay, but at the end of the day, we're still on the hook, even after they reimburse some of the costs for $55,000 a year. Now, we asked for follow-ups, and they said that there is no clear policy outlining what Canadian prime ministers, uh, you know, can or cannot expense the taxpayer mm. for. I'm glad you asked about our neighbours, because just south of the border in the United States, there is a clear policy. Uh-huh. So a president and their first family are charged personally for all the groceries and household items that they expense while living in the White House. But up here in Canada, it's just not clear. So there are no clear policy rules, and it's taxpayers who are left holding the bag because of that. All right. So um, uh, is there any uh, gathering just by the way you describe the the process of getting any information on this file being arduous on a good day? uh, Do you sense any appetite whatsoever for uh, following along with the notion of publishing these uh, details publicly? (laughs) Well, there should be. I mean, remember when uh, the Prime Minister, Mr. Trudeau, was uh, first running for that office, uh, he said something to the effect, right, like transparency by default. That's how he wanted to run this government. Well, then transparency has to start at the top. And there really is no more top than the Prime Minister's household food expenses uh, to begin with, right? Uh, And this was a a huge story. I've received tons of emails, tons, tons of notification on social media. People have been calling me. You know, we love to get people's feedback. And and one of the things that we're hearing is that it's also just the timing of the story, right? When people are finding out that the prime minister's household food is costing about 55000 a year, when so many people right now are struggling mm-hmm. to actually buy ground beef, right, to have the taco night with their families, uh, to even just pack their kids' lunch, it is becoming an arduous task for many Canadians. So I, I think this is going to be a real political issue. And, and, and if this is something that really boils your own bloods when you're listening to this conversation, please reach out to your member of parliament and tell them that this isn't fair and we need to clean it up. Yeah, and of course, then you have the added expense and complication to the process of the meals being prepared at the official residence of the prime minister, which is 24 Sussex Drive. The current prime minister grew up in that house. He hates it, hasn't lived there for a minute since he took over office and will not. But then you're still staffing out that place and... And a full kitchen staff, and then somebody has to drive it down the road to Rideau Cottage where everybody eats it. That's a, a lot of unnecessary expense. Well, you know, it's, it's crazy because it even gets worse than that, right? Not only do, is the Prime Minister living in Rideau Hall, a taxpayer mansion, not only do you have another taxpayer-funded mansion at 24 Sussex, but you also have another taxpayer-funded mansion for the Prime Minister at Harrington Lake, where renovations were like $11 million. Right. The cost just to renovate that kitchen was like $700,000. So it really feels like taxpayers are getting hit on all angles here, uh, whether it's the Prime Minister's residence, whether it's the Prime Minister's household food tab. Um, but another uh, another body that needs to be brought onto the cross uh, fire here is the National Capital Commission, because they're the ones who are, are usually tasked with overseeing these official residents. Sure. And every time they bring back a tab saying, hey, it's going to cost this much to fix this, it's going to cost this much to fix this, it's a huge tab. It's an absolutely huge tab. So another body that needs to be questioned here is the National Capital Commission because these days it seems like the only thing that they're competent at doing is giving taxpayers a huge bill to pay for. Indeed. Uh, remind us of the Taxpayer Federation website, please, Mr. Terrazano. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Please, please head over to taxpayer.com. Uh, look at our newsroom to see what we're doing. And we got a bunch of petitions up there as well. Well, you're a good, good organization and uh, the country needs you. Keep it up, Franco. And thanks for doing this with us this weekend again. Well, thank you for having me on.
Professor Patrick Condon joining us now from the Faculty of Urban Design out at UBC. Uh, Professor Condon, good morning. Municipal elections mercifully over, but my gosh, lots of promises made in the past few weeks around Metro Vancouver, especially about public safety and transportation as they look at population growth. Let's talk a little bit about what the promises were said. Yeah, there's a lot more of that in the plan or in the rhetoric of the candidates, as it may be. And a lot of that is driven by the uh, infrastructure decisions that have been made about where the new SkyTrain line will go. And the city of uh, uh, Vancouver and the city of Surrey both have their extensions along those lines. Sure. And in order to justify those expenditures, they're imagining tens of thousands, literally tens of thousands of condominium structures to be built close to those stations. And my, my, my uh, comment on that is that while that's, that's a logical thing to do, mm-hmm. unfortunately what we have not seen associated with that is any, any degree of enhanced affordability. In fact, the price of that kind of tower housing and high-density housing, no matter where it is in the region, has become uh, financially quite out of reach for the average citizen. So that, that's become a problem. The bigger problem associated with that is that most uh, campaigns that we've just gratefully concluded, yes. uh, their proponents have suggested that, oh, with all these people coming, we really have to build thousands and thousands more housing units, uh, particularly in the city of Vancouver. That's, that's been the, uh, the clarion call. Yes. Uh, and, and partly, they say, or largely because that will make the prices go down. And unfortunately, there is no evidence that adding that out, those housing units to Vancouver is going to make prices go down or anywhere else in the region, for that matter. We're, we're, we're stuck in a cycle that really doesn't have to do with supply and demand housing units. And you also talked about this trying to change the mentality of some of these urban planners, Professor Condon, uh, from getting away from what you call the hub and spoke system where all roads lead to Vancouver because most of the growth going forward uh, is not going to happen in Vancouver. There's not a lot of room for it. So more growth is going to occur to the east of the city. Well, that's already happening. If you look at the annual growth statistics, for the region uh, in the city of Vancouver, it's less than one, slightly less than one percent, and trending down mm-hmm. in terms of population growth. That's even with all of the building that you see, all the construction cranes that you see. Where the real growth is, it might be less uh, obvious, is south of Fraser or to the east in the Lower Mainland. You get growth rates out there that are three times as great per unit population as in Vancouver. There's a lot of reasons for that. One was that long ago we committed to what was called the Livable Region Strategic Plan. That plan was promulgated in the 1980s based on the insight that because because Vancouver, the center of Vancouver, is surrounded by mountains and water and the U.S. border has substantial limits to uh, circumferential growth, the only way to grow was to the east. And to the east, you have a number of water bodies that you have to go. So the bridge issue becomes quite uh, provocative. So they came up with a plan, uh, without boring your listeners, that uh, intentionally said there will be not one city center. There will be many. 
Uh-huh. There will be one in Surrey. There will be one in Burnaby. There will be one in Vancouver. There will be one in Maple Ridge, and there mm-hmm. will be one in in uh, Langley. For goodness sakes, sure. I've missed one or two, but there you have them. And they were supposed to, because of these uh, geographic and uh, transportation and financial issues, they were supposed to absorb most of the growth. It turns out that that has been the case, and because no one can afford to live in Vancouver anymore, mm-hmm. more and more people are finding jobs out there instead of uh, struggling to get from Maple Ridge to uh, downtown Vancouver. Yeah. Professor Condon, during the election campaign in the city of Vancouver, there was only one mayoralty candidate, Colleen Hardwick, who proposed, even advanced the notion of a rethink on the expensive uh, subway going west to UBC down down Broadway. Uh, you are in favor of light rail transit as opposed to elevated SkyTrain style transit, simply from a cost of bang for your buck perspective. And with all that growth coming, as you predict, and as is clearly evident south and east of the city light rail at a considerably reduced cost is going to make a lot more sense going forward but it's not as sexy a sell for politicians how quickly if ever do you think politicians are going to come around to recognizing the value of light rail well, I hope uh, they do it sooner versus later because the existing system we have is enormously expensive. People like it because they don't really understand how much it costs per trip to build and maintain that system. It's the most yeah. expensive system per passenger mile that you can imagine. And if if the issue is not getting people from Maple Ridge to downtown anymore, but rather distributing them more evenly throughout the region, if you have a hope in heck to have people use transit instead of clogging the, the roads and highways with their cars, polluting and, and wasting money. If you have a hope and heck of, of, uh, of uh, being able to afford transit for such a system, it needs to be at least 10 times cheaper than the SkyTrain system. And in my view, the light rail uh, system does that. Uh, those of your listeners who are lucky enough to go to either Melbourne or uh, Vienna, know that cities served, bigger cities than ours, served uh, on the surface with light rail, are wonderful places to be. Much easier to access that light rail vehicle on the street than to go down four flights to uh, the subterranean world of the subway. Interesting. Well, Calgary is a, a, a much more uh, a, a close, uh, it's a much closer, rather, uh, uh, observable uh, light rail system that clearly works for that crowd. Uh, uh, by the way, we're almost out of time here, Professor Condon, and I wanted to get your take on, on, on the projection of growth. For example, uh, in the next 10 years, they're saying that the population of Metro Vancouver will be uh, about 300,000 greater than it is right now, and we're already more than half the population of the province. Do you, do you, uh, are those numbers making sense to you, those projections? Well, they might be a little bit on the scary side, but I think, you you know, you could say 200,000 on the low side and 300,000 on the high side. Okay. It's a question of where is it going to go? And uh, the, uh, the recent election in the city of Vancouver, uh, 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 the defeated uh, Kennedy, Stu- uh, Kennedy Stewart, Mayor Kennedy Stewart, uh, proposed that most of that growth was going to go in the city of Vancouver, for, for goodness sakes. Well, you know, maybe. 
that's what he wanted. He didn't win on that platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that would ignore the fact that uh, the real growth appears to be, for whatever sets of reasons, either intentional or because it's organically simpler or financially simpler, that most of that growth is south of the Fraser and to the east, or at least the, the highest percentage of that growth, and growing faster than the city of Vancouver. Absolutely. So that's why, that's why um, you know, the number... 200,000, 300,000 isn't really scary to me, but it's a question that it, it seems to have clouded the, uh, the minds of many of our local politicians. Professor Patrick Condon, delighted to have found you at the School of Urban Design at UBC, sir. And there's a lot of people coming to our part of the world. Let's uh, keep this conversation active going forward. Great to have you on the show this morning, sir. Thank you very much. My pleasure. My pleasure entirely. Well, awkward is an adjective that has been used in a couple of provincial leadership campaigns in Canada recently. One looks next door to Alberta, for example, with Danielle Smith's process of replacing Jason Kenney. Awkward came up an awful lot in that uh, political situation. And awkward is the beginning of the description of the leadership race for the NDP in British Columbia, which yesterday saw the party declare David Eby to be premier-elect. Mr. Eby has not yet indicated a swearing-in date, but it's a done deal, however awkwardly. Here to talk about it, a veteran political analyst from the Department of Political Science at UBC. Always a pleasure to say good morning to Professor Max Cameron. Good morning, Max. Welcome back, sir. Good morning. Thank you very much. Oh, it's great to have you back with us, Max. Awkward. Uh, did that occur to you more than a few times over the past few days? Oh, absolutely. No, this is a situation that really I don't think anybody wanted. Um, you know, my hunch is that Angelia Apodari, when she was uh, taking on this campaign, was hoping to push the party uh, to address environmental issues, I think probably surprised by her, her own success. And then to be disqualified in this way, of course, is uh, deeply, deeply frustrating. And it's a real shame for, uh, for David Eby, who this was to be a crowning moment right. uh, in his career. And, uh, and unfortunately, it's, it's, I think, quite bruised by it all. And we know from history that that can be very hard for a leader going into an election. So it certainly is, is, is indeed awkward. Yeah, it is. And of course, here you have the left-wing government of British Columbia being criticized by the left for not being quite left enough. And that alone is awkward. It is, and, and I think that the truth of the matter is that there's a growing sense that we are in a climate emergency and that the NDP, uh, really particularly since it broke with the Greens and the uh, confidence of supply arrangement that was in place uh, after the 2017 election, uh, that the party has really embraced uh, Site C, uh, LNG, has not delivered on its promise with respect to uh, ending old growth logging and so forth. And so there's a very strong uh, current within the base of the NDP that just feels that this party really isn't fundamentally different from the party that uh, that it, it replaced. I think that, combined with the fact that the party has not done enough to invest in uh, party organization, I mean, the fact that you've got just 11,000 members um, down from over 40 thousand uh, some some few years ago um, really suggests that uh, you know it's a problem the political line has been pointing to for years parties increasingly are vehicles for candidates and they're not uh, they're not um, they don't have the kind of presence uh, in in uh, the everyday life of their members that, uh, that that once they did and and so I think a combination of those two things 
Um, plus, add, add onto that uh, an uncontested race. And I think it's, this is why you want to have competitive elections. Coronations are, are really just not a good idea for parties. Had there been competition for that role, there would have been energy being put in to by other members of the party to, to drum up um, membership. So yeah, Max, what we're talking, uh, you've just given us a couple of really good examples of people taking things for granted. David Eby, for example, at least on the surface of things, appearing to take the challenge by, uh, uh, by Anjali Apadurai for granted, uh, although behind the scenes apparently there was a lot more going on than met the eye. But on the other hand, as you're talking about the party membership falling to the low level that it currently sits at, it's more surprising, I think, Max, because the party has this really solid majority in Victoria, and they are absolutely in charge. One would think that during this period particularly, the party would take advantage of that and multiply its membership rather than reduce it. Well, since you mentioned majority, I have to say that I think that there is uh, an an electoral um, system story to this, and that is that while uh, governments are in minority positions and they have to reach agreements with uh, with other parties to govern. Right. You actually find them more responsive to the public. It's when parties have majorities that they tend to ignore uh, those parts of the public and even their own membership um, that is inconvenient to them from the perspective of the other big job they have, which isn't just to represent their base, but it's also to compete successfully uh, with other parties to, to win elections. And, and so uh, you know, I, I think that, frankly, um, had, had um, the arrangement with the B.C. Greens persisted, you would have seen more of an effort to find a balance between development and protection of the, econo- of the, of the, of, of the environment. Now, we, of course, uh, had this whole situation where uh, the, the uh, forces uh, opposing Mr. Eby, that's the supporters of Apaderai, uh, were disqualified by Elizabeth Cull, uh, the uh, leadership campaign uh, director, uh, and for various reasons uh, that she saw as being significant and substantial. Uh, will, do you expect an appeal at all, or is this over? I suspect it's over. I mean, just just listening to what Apaderai has been saying subsequently, it, it sounds like she's quite clear this is the beginning, not the end. But it doesn't sound to me like she wants to litigate this so much as I think there'll be a, more of an effort um, to try to uh, gain ground within the party. I, it, she's not signaling that she's leaving the NDP and going to the Greens, although suppose, I suppose that, that that could very well happen. But I think the sense is... Um, that uh, that uh, the, the longer-term strategy um, is is going to be to continue to try to influence the, the party to move it uh, toward taking the environment more seriously. And it may very well be the case that, that uh, David Eby um, recognizes the awkward position he's in and decides, in fact, that what he needs to do is to act to address uh, some of these concerns uh, with, with more energy than his predecessor did. Do you think that uh, Apaderai and her supporters are going to e- eventually cause an erosion within the membership, limited though it may be already with the NDP, and perhaps a movement towards the Green Party, which they certainly would welcome, even though they're not officially requesting any such move? Do you see one coming, Max? Well, I mean, I think what people, what some people within the NDP would say is that many of these supporters actually would find their natural home with the Green Party, and that's yeah. where they should be. The unfortunate thing about that is it really sends out a signal to people who care about the environment that they're not welcome in the NDP. That, I think, is unfortunate uh, from the perspective of the NDP. Um, so, in some sense, that may in- indeed be what, what uh, many people within the party, certainly that's the, the way that John Horgan has, has tended to, to speak. He tends to speak um, his his. 
Um, his, his language suggests that he really thinks that people who take very seriously the idea that we're in a climate emergency as, as being radicals and extremists. If, if that's their view, yes, I do believe that many of these people will uh, go to, to the Green Party, and they are likely to be a beneficiary in terms of members. The Liberal Party, on the other hand, is likely to be the beneficiary just in the sense that if the NDP finds itself uh, losing public support and looking more vulnerable, they are the more natural uh, um, alternative to government. I was just going to say, there's got to be some kind of benefit in this. There's some kind of real upside for the opposition in all of this as they watch this incredibly awkward process unfold. Uh, They've just gone through their leadership, and now they're going to probably do some kind of name change before the next election. But this, uh, they would see this as being low-hanging fruit, wouldn't they? Yeah, I mean, I think both the Greens and the Liberals would be able to say, we have internal democratic processes and we're, our leaders are a reflection of that, and that's just not the case of the NDP. I mean, the NDP basically lost control um, of the leadership selection process and wound up having to disqualify someone. What, whatever you think about the arguments, whether they were valid or not, to complain about you know dogwood assisting a powder right. uh, as many members, um, the fact of the matter is it looks very much to be the case uh, that, that she had brought in so many new members that, that there, she had stood a very good chance of winning. The party looked at that and said, this would be a disaster for us. She'd have no support in the caucus. She's never held public office. She'd take us in a very different direction. Um, that would create a host of problems. One can understand uh, the, the fear and the, the concern that that would cause within the caucus and within the, the leadership. But it just doesn't look like uh, the NDP at this point uh, has a functioning internal democratic process for selecting its leaders. And I, I think that's just very, very damaging, unfortunately. Interesting to, stuff. Uh, Almost out of time here, Max. And speaking of the democratic process, do you anticipate, for any reason, an early election call by David Eby? Or is he going to spend time between now and the next officially scheduled provincial election rebuilding fences? I'd be a little surprised. I mean, I think that they, they went for a majority government uh, in order to have a, a, a long enough life to um, be able to position themselves as best they possibly can. Now with this uh, situation, I think that EB is going to want to establish himself and to, um, you know, beca- become, uh, for British Columbians, become familiar with him. Uh, he is an, an, an immensely... Um, effective politician. Uh, we've seen his work in a range of areas as, 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 as Attorney General, mm-hmm. his work in housing and, um, and ICBC and so forth. I think he's going to want to continue to burnish his credentials and to try to uh, put this behind him before uh, running into, you know, call, calling the writ, dropping the writ and calling an election right away. Yeah, I think you're probably right on that. Give it some breathing room. Create some space. Max Cameron, always a pleasure, sir. It's been forever since we had a chat on the radio. Let's do it again, well, before forever comes around again. That would be fabulous. Thank you so much for having me on again. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live six to nine weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think French fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.